Deep Sea Podcast, Punk take on a science podcast about everything deep sea. I'm Dr. Thomas Lindley, and with me, not because of a calendar invite that reminded him on his phone, but by order of the British Empire. Oof, nice. Professor Alan Jameson, OBE. Thank you very much. <laughs> You've probably got some stories to tell, Al. Some stuff's been going on. I've got an OBE. <laughs> <laughs> How does it arrive? Is it just like in a Kinder Egg? It doesn't. When do you go and get it? When do you go and meet the royals? Well, this is the weird thing. So the, I nearly didn't get it because they were trying to get hold of me, but I happened to be on a ship halfway between Mexico and Hawaii. <gasps> you stood up the royal family? I wasn't answering my landline. And, uh, of course, you get lots of WhatsApps when you're off, but you don't get normal text messages. So there was a long kind of weird story about I got up one morning and there was loads of missed calls from various other people that they tried to get hold of. And they phoned my university and they've never heard of me. So, so that's going well. Yeah. So some <laughs> nice lady from the palace called me up and says, uh, do you want OBE? And I was like, yeah, cool. Go for it. Pop it in the post. Uh, but you have to agree to it verbally and that was about a week before Christmas and then I had nothing at all so I figured it was either a joke or because of all the confusion about where it was uh, and didn't go through and then right enough it popped up on New Year's Eve on the honours list published in the London Gazette and I was like okay that's cool because I was about to fly back to the UK so I thought I'm going to go and hang out with King Charles old Chuck but then it turns out I don't think I don't get it yet so I have it I'm now an officer of the most excellent order of the British Empire and that, what I have to do now is wait six months for an email and then that email will tell me what to do right it'll just continue coordinates you've got to go to this location i'm guessing yeah yeah it's just a latin long somewhere i th- i suspect that they need six months to finish making my suit of armor yeah. and find a suitable black horse for me to ride into work every day well they're still brushing its hair it's going to have really shiny hair yeah, yeah yeah and if somebody needs to forge my sword i think that's probably what the delay is i'm going i'm going to request black armor with a hint of batman in it just a little bit of batman a little bit of medieval jousting, uh, and it'll look awesome. Anything sticking off the off the top of the helmet? Any sort of symbology going on there? Little bat ears? Yeah, maybe a little bat ears, but then sort of humble ones. You know, we don't want to go too bat. Just a little bit, and maybe some sort of horse hair affair. Well, you, you know, some of them had the sort of weird viewing slits in the helmet. Yeah, the sub would be really good. Just three three dis- disconcerting holes in the helmet, like the viewports at the sub. I was thinking more like a sort of Mandalorian type of helmet. That would be pretty badass. It would. It would. It's just so done. It's so familiar. Is it? Is that as it is? It's too. It's common as muck these days. I just feel like the the whole character exists because the design was so good. The actual <laughs> the actual character in the original films. He doesn't do an awful lot, but everyone really just latched onto the design because it was so cool. Yeah. Well, I'll put that order in and uh, explain to them that I understand this is why there's a delay, but uh, <laughs> this is why I want you to forge. Lots of forging going on. <laughs> forge away. Forge away. Go, boys. Forge for me. <laughs> And any news from that trip that you almost missed your OBE for? Well, you've caught me in the middle of two trips because I'm now closer to the next one than I am to the last one. So uh, the last one, we went from Mexico to Hawaii and did a couple of sub-dives, did another 20 landers, mapped huge amount of seafloor, discovered loads of seamounts. That was really good. It was leg five of six and then I got off in Hawaii and then Heather and the team got on in Hawaii and took it down to Tahiti and that's that's the big abyssal plane surveys finished. That was Six three-week legs. It's been quite a monster. I think wow. it's like 30,000 nautical miles we did in the end, and 128 landers. And I think we mapped 300,000 square kilometres of abyssal plain. So that was cool. But that's that bit finished, and they were just getting ready to go to a place in Kiribati, which is a big fracture zone. It's eight and a half thousand metre fracture zone, and we're going to spend 12 weeks on there. Wow. Yeah. Busy, busy. Did you say the 6th of 6th? Is this the end of this this particular phase? It's the end of the Bissell Plain one, so now we're going to do a big, huge, big fracture zone campaign, so that's more of a vertical story rather than a horizontal one. And then we've got three weeks off or six weeks off, I can't remember now, and then we're going to go and do a big trench, and that'll be hopefully Tonga Trench. That'll be the big 10,800 metre one. Oh, cool. And then we finish doing the trench, we'll go to Antarctica and do a nice big cold one. Busy year. Yeah, yeah, a lot crammed in. Yeah, it's uh, it's taken its toll, though. It's uh, a lot of running around, a lot of buying shackles. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm doing lots of run-ins around Bunnings right now and spending frightening amounts of money on nuts and bolts and things. But we're going to have to talk about that later. We're going to talk about prepping for a cruise and things like that, but we'll get around to that. Before we delve any deeper, I do want to say a quick thank you to our patrons. We have new patrons for this month. We have Anthony Raymond, Courtney Johnson, Davina Gifford, and Sophie Schindler. Thank you, guys. Thank you. You help it keep going. Uh, One of those names on there is familiar. And if it is who I think it is, that's a little bit daunting. (laughs) Why? One of those names is the director of the museum, who I know has listened to a few episodes, but it does make me nervous. (laughs) So best behavior, you and OBE, 
you can't misbehave anymore. No, no. Got to re- represent the empire. The empire. Does that mean <laughs> they're allowed to use the Imperial March as a soundtrack? Of course. Yeah, okay. Put it as your ringtone. Yeah. In other news, Feedspot voted us the third best marine science podcast. So third place isn't bad, but you always had a philosophy about bronze, Alan. It's just posh brown. It's just shiny brown. That's all that is. It's posh brown. Yeah. So that was a little bit exciting, a little bit of a boost from that. I appeared on the podcast Just the Zoo of Us, uh, which was good fun. Somehow we ended up talking about the steampunk spider from Wild Wild West and the Japanese horror comic about the fault zone and lots of other weird pop culture references while talking about deep sea critters as well. So that's quite a fun one. We'll put a link in for that one. And yeah, I had some weird podcasting experiences sort of off the back of that. I know you've, you've had a few pints bought for you, Yes, but have you had any sort of weird sort of the podcast leaking into real life? Because I've had a few weird ones in the last month or so. Not really, but I don't tend to socialize anymore. So Oh, that does it. It keeps you busy enough and it just keeps you out of trouble. Yeah. Yeah. So one of them was you know how I like to have lots of different desktop backgrounds on my computer and I've sort of become quite known for it. Uh, I had a friend, colleague come to chat to me and started looking at one of my screens. I was like, is, is that a picture of you? And I'd got fan art. You remember that really nice snailfish one that's somebody oh, yeah, sent yeah, in? Yeah. yeah. And I just put it in my rotation of desktop backgrounds because I really like the image. And I've then really, in that moment, I realized how weird that is. And I just had a moment of like, yeah, yeah, it is. And then did you make that? No, it's, this is where it got weirder when I had to say, no, it's fan art. (laughs) (laughs) No, what what can I say? I'm just popular with the kids. Oh, it just, it just, it got really weird in that moment. I just put a bit of art into my, into my background rotation. And yeah, it is quite weird to have fan art of myself. (laughs) One thing that did happen, which is kind of cool, and I want to give this person a particular mention because I haven't actually found the time to write bad to them, but they wrote into the the podcast one. I don't know if you you saw that one, Tom. It's from someone called Hannah Folk Doyle. Hmm. She's a, a neonatal intensive care nurse. She wrote to us and said that she has knows nothing about the deep sea, but has a very stressful job, and she listens to us all the time. And she sent us a really really nice email that I read to my wife, and she, my wife was quite emotional oh. because she couldn't believe that we were involved in something that was <laughs> was was so touching to somebody else. And so she got a really nice email. Oh, your your wife's onto us, isn't she? Those two. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So uh, thank you very much, Hannah Folk Doyle, for your email. It's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Oh, yeah. Well remembered. I do remember that one. That was that was cute. Yeah. On 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 equally judgmental wife news, I was caught chatting to the Discord and then had to explain who I was talking to and the look of disgust of like, so you've just got just a, a chat room full of your fans and you're talking to them. Like, yeah, it's it's fun and interesting. <laughs> but again, it suddenly was I was suddenly aware of how weird that is. Hit the big time now, mate. Hit the big time. Oh, it's been weird. It's been weird. We we had some fun over Christmas as well. I'm not sure we got to talk about it on the last episode, but we took our podcast to work day. So the patrons, I took them around the museum collection and you took them mm. around the subhanger, yes. around the vessel. It was quite good fun. It goes to show how good the internet is these days. So only a few years ago we wouldn't be able to oh, do that. That's amazing. But yeah. So we had them on my phone and wandered them around the ship in the middle of nowhere. That's great. Good fun. So yeah, that was the the pre-Christmas treat for them. That was good fun. I did have a song of the month, but did you have anything that was living in your brain, Alan? No, I have no time for music at the moment. Oh no, it's still, still all joy is sucked from your life. It's just work and toil. Well, as an update, you know, it's almost February now. Uh, Spotify is still giving me Christmas music because it breaks every year because I listen to too much Christmas music. Uh, And so the entire weekly discovery playlist this week was... Christmas music, with the exception of one song from the Muppets movie. So I've once again ruined my algorithm uh, when it comes to Spotify. But previous to me breaking it, I found the track A Song About an Anglerfish by Hank Green. So that can be the soundtrack of the month. Right, so on to news. Is there anything that's caught your eye? I found a few a few stories bouncing around. A lot's happened, really, because we had a special episode, so we've yeah. not really had a, a news dump since before Christmas. There's all sorts of stuff. Deep sea mining stories, megalodons, <laughs> the biggest, longest cold water coral which has been found of Florida. That was a big one. Yeah, so that is the... It's on the Blake Plateau. That's right, yeah. And it was a multi-year survey 
lots of bathymetry and yeah, huge cold water coral reef. So these are the corals that grow without symbiotic algae. So really slow growing, really old stuff. I did a project on them back in the day and uh, yeah, they found a huge one. And one of the biggest news pieces covering that I found starts with the moon analogy. Of course it does. And then immediately swerves and says, it turns out that's not actually true and links to our conversation piece. Nice. Excellent. I like that. So you can still use it. You can still get that you can still get that hit of the moon analogy, but then you can just do a, a, a cheeky swerve at the end. Yeah, you still bait people with it. It embarrassingly came up last week when we, Tom and I had a, a meeting with one of our other clients who was doing some sort of graphic and it had a picture of me. <sighs> underneath the picture of me, it said to be no more about the surface of the moon than the deep sea. I was like, really? <laughs> I was like, oh. They must know. They must just be doing it to hurt you. It just never stops, right? It just never, ever ends. Someone else mentioned it this afternoon and a different meeting and that'll remain nameless, but yeah, they, they pointed that out. I was like, all oh, right, is that right? Oh, okay. Immediate black mark. Sigh. Big sigh. <laughs> uh, well, to do a little bit of a news dump, a megalodon tooth has been found in a manganese nodule field at just over three kilometers deep in the central Pacific Ocean, which is quite cool. Um, that raises all sorts of interesting questions about the sedimentation rate of these sites. And it did have a manganese encrusting on it. So it gives us sort of ideas of how long these manganese deposits take to form because it's, yeah, it's a megalodon tooth, basically, sitting on top of the of the seabed. So it hasn't been buried by things, um, but it has been there long enough for the manganese to form around it. So interesting indicator of how long and how static these areas are. Just to hammer it home, the megalodon is not a deep sea animal and is dead, but I will allow branching out of this topic a little bit. And a recent study showed that it might be longer than previous estimates. There's very little fossil evidence because it tends to just be the teeth, uh, but the proportions of the few vertebrae we do have suggest that it was longer and more slender, which is kind of the flip side of the Dunkleosteus, the big placoderm, the big armored fish, which it's now thought might actually be smaller and stockier. And basically the take home from these is stop assuming things are the shape of a great white shark and just adjusting the size. Because <laughs> that's with both of these animals, the body was just assumed to be roughly that of a great white shark. And it, it turns out great white sharks are great white sharks and not many other things are. So when did Megalodon go extinct? Oh, uh, when was it? Don't worry, I'm Googling it too. Okay, you Google it too. You Google it harder than me and faster. 3.6 million years ago, according to uh, NPR on Google search. There we go. It's all a while. It's not coming back. Mm. And the only reason we fixate on it is because it was the biggest one we know about. If we found a bigger shark, everyone would immediately be like, oh, maybe this is still alive somewhere. So it's not actually based on evidence. It's based on... Yeah. <laughs> but speaking of deep sea mining... There you go. This is a bit of a curveball. I wasn't ready for this one. Norway are going to do it and they're going to do it in their own ocean. And the area they're proposing to mine is looks like it's actually a lot bigger than Norway. It's sort of in between Norway and Svalbard, between Norway and Svalbard and Greenland, but it's massive. 280,000 square kilometers. All the debates we've had about the Pacific and they're just going to do it and it's in their waters so they can. It's weird. It's a bit sort of anticlimactic, isn't it? But that's the whole point of the exclusive economic zone. You have exclusive economic rights to it. Yeah, it's theirs. And if you want to make money of it, you can do what you like. So that's where it becomes a little bit contentious because we don't really want them doing that kind of stuff. But I don't know. And even even some of the countries who've who've said that they're going to have a monitorium and they're not going to do it, they're still figuring out how much it's worth. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> just so they know. It's just like, yeah, but it's ours. How much is it worth? Yeah. Just before we actually pull the plug on it, tell me again how many zeros. <laughs> a largest study of ocean DNA finds a huge abundance of fungi in the mesopelagic zone. Really? Um, so I didn't clock this one at all. Yeah, apparently. Metagenome sampling of pelagic samples all across the globe, found that fungi represent 50% of the distinct genes found within the mesopelagic. So lots of, I guess, living on the marine snow. Wow, that's the first time I heard about that. That's cool. Yeah. Marine fungi seem a, a bit of a, an odd group, but apparently very, very important. We're not paying attention to them. Oh, okay. But fungi are a great spot for new drug compounds, new pharmaceuticals, and particularly new antibiotics. So can we not just enjoy the shrooms and not turn it into some sort of application that that benefits humans? Can we not? Can it not just be good for the sake of being interesting? Can we not just enjoy little floaty mushrooms? We might enjoy them even more if they save our lives. Yeah, I suppose. <laughs> well done, tiny mushroom. Yeah. Thanks, floaty shroom. <laughs> Mario was right. <laughs> you'll be cured, but you'll be all big. <laughs> On the genetic side of things, the first hagfish genome has been sequenced. So the first genome of a jawless vertebrate. And they are they are wild. They're a really 
primitive group. They hold lots of secrets to vertebrate evolution and how we developed. So having a reference genome from a jawless vertebrate is really, really useful for sort of developmental and evolution studies. And I didn't realize how weird their genetic makeup was. Apparently they have a large number of micro chromosomes mm -hmm. and they... <laughs> They are lost during the development. So they they slowly lose them and they're only present in the genitals as an adult, oh. which is weird. So they had to take their, their tissue samples from the genitals because that's the only place where the complete genome is found, which is wild. Hmm. So they obviously only need some of these genes at lower developmental stages. And then when it's the adult, they just sort of trim it back to just the adult genes. There's some really weird stuff going on. And we do have an episode coming up on hagfish because yeah. we need to dive into this weirdness. Yes. There's a lot to talk about. Hagfish never fail to deliver the weirdness. <laughs> they don't. And they're quite surprising to meet them firsthand. They're quite, uh, yeah, you're never ready for them. <laughs> so slightly different episode this time. We are both in the throes of prepping to go to sea. Very, very busy. Lots of buying of shackles. It's always lots of buying of shackles. You always need more shackles than you think you do. So we thought for this one, we would do a little Q&A from, uh, from listeners about mainly the sort of offshore life going on these expeditions and what it's like. So we got some questions from uh, listeners and I thought we could just rapid fire these. And if any interesting bigger stories come up, we'll just All right. we'll go with it. Go with it. Question, question number one. Well, this is a potentially dangerous one. We're straight. We're going in hot. Do you ever start getting annoyed with everyone when it's drawing to the end of the trip? Or do you always keep spirits high and tensions low? I don't think I've ever been annoyed with everyone, but I certainly get annoyed with some people. So I think it depends who it is and the circumstance. But yes, there are times on the longer trips where you do want to strangle people by the end of it, but you just have to bury that. <laughs> and ability to get on with people at sea can be a factor in you being included yeah. in the trip. Like a, a big element of it is how well do you get along with others? Because there's some people who are absolute geniuses and brilliant at their work, but they just, they don't get on well with others and you yeah. you can't have that poisoning the vibe on the ship. There's an element of cabin fever there too. I think, I think anything over a month, you can see not, not necessarily with me and anyone else, but you can see it amongst everyone that there's after about a month, people start to get on each other's nerves a little bit. <laughs> and what's cool is when you get off the ship and go to the pub or something like that, it all goes away. It goes away instantly. You can be like really yeah. kind of like, I just can't stand this guy anymore. But then as soon as you're off the ship and it's like, last night, let's go for a beer. And it just evaporates. It's kind of weird. It's just it's total cabin fever. Mm -hmm. I get that. Do you ever have a moment where you're just, wow, this is my job. I get to do this. And is it tied to a certain moment? Is there is there one that jumps out for you? Uh, yeah, sometimes. Yeah, yeah. There are sometimes. I can't think of one specifically, but you know, when we, we find something we wasn't expecting, or like you're sitting in a submarine looking at something every now and again, it does pop into your back of your mind that this is not normal, right? <laughs> it's like, you know, <laughs> I'm looking at something that human beings have never seen before, and you know, something that and a, a structure that was formed millions of years ago and it's been sitting underwater that entire time, and then suddenly one day on, on a, a Sunday morning, we've sort of showed up and went, "Ooh, look at that." So there are little moments where you think that's that is pretty cool. What about you? Uh, no, definitely. There's been a there's been a few, but I try and keep stock of that. I try not to let it get too normal because we are really lucky to do what we do and see the things we do. Um, it was a story I told recently on that other show was the ethereal. I just think that was such a that was such a cool story because it was just the three of us up at three a.m. absolutely exhausted from the day, and then just to <laughs> just to get some, someone wheel back their chair and just go check out this fish. Yeah. <laughs> that was a really good one. Oh, and then the flip side: Have you ever had days or specific trips that have made you close to never going out again? I think we've all had those. Uh, probably not so much recently. I think there was a period of time around. 2005, 2006, or something like that, that I was doing a lot of trips on lots of different vessels, doing lots of different things, you know. And I remember once going from a, a trawler in the North Sea, coming back to the house for like 24 hours, jumping on a plane, going to Malta, joining a German ship, spending a month going around the Mediterranean, doing really crazy hours, and then flying home, waiting two days, and then flying to South Africa, and then doing this crazy trip down the Southern Ocean that lasted like six or seven weeks. And I think that was that was before I had family and stuff like that. But I think there were times where it probably pushing it a bit too hard, and you're just like, you know, what am I doing? Mm. And that's an amazing opportunity, but that that burns you out. Yeah, even when you're sort of younger and stuff like that, there comes a point where like, I just want to 
just slow down a bit. It's not so much the, the cruise itself, I think. It's just the, the traveling and the sort of getting your mind from a bunch of Germans doing CDT profiles, and then you're a bunch of <laughs> British doing loads of trolls, and then you've run, you know, you're jumping to different nationalities, different gear, different science objectives, you know, loads of different time zones, and you're just exhausted. And lots to worry about for each one. Will the gear be there? Yeah. And just a long, long day. It's like a 16 hour day isn't unusual. And yeah. there's only so many weeks you can keep that up for yeah. before you just buckle. I think. I was similar back in the the days working in uh, in survey where that it was a lot of time offshore, and I can remember one where we'd all absolutely busted a gut because we were trying. There was a storm rolling in. If we got the survey done that night, we could all be home for Christmas. If the storm rolled in, we couldn't work. We'd have to stay out on site, and no one would get Christmas. And so we absolutely busted a gut. Everyone sort of pulled above and beyond to try and get done. And I came into port late at night on the twenty third. And we'd done it. We'd made it. And as I'm walking down the gangway, my boss is stood at the end of it. And before I'd even got within earshot of him, I was like, I'm, I'm not going home for Christmas. Like something's fallen through and I'm going to be sent immediately onto another boat. And I just knew it walking down before he even had to say anything. And I've seen a meme going around at the moment of uh, say people in the military or the Navy being served a really nice meal and how everyone is like, oh no because that's the meal you get before you're deployed or before you get bad news or you're going to be out there for longer. And that's how it felt just walking down the gangway. And I was just like, oh, no, I'm not going home. <laughs> are the rooms slash bunks assigned or is it first in best dressed? Uh, they are very much assigned usually. It's assigned. You don't normally get a, get a choice in that. And it's assigned based on number of people versus if they're shared. If they're shared, then it's male-female ratios. There's other things to consider, like it's quite nice sometimes if you're doing a back-to-back -back with someone. So someone's doing a 12-hour shift. And if you're bunking up in the same cabin as someone who's doing the same job as you, it means the agreement is for 12 hours a day the cabin's yours and for the other 12 hours a day the cabin's someone else's. They're better ones. And so it's the it's normally the, the ship that decides how to allocate stuff like that so you don't really get a say you can if you've been on the same ship a lot you can probably wrangle a slightly better deal and you can always bribe people as well bribing is an option <laughs> yeah never forget bribing always on, on a ship yep your cabin allocation is usually tied to your role during an emergency and so that might be based on your level of training so they're not going to have you on the fire team if you haven't done your firefighting and things like that so sometimes that can influence which cabin you're put into Oh, the scariest moment at sea. Well, I've had a few. Uh, mm. I think probably, I don't know, it's a, a toss-up between being in an absolute horrendous storm in Antarctica and thinking that Heather was going to get cut in two. And I couldn't, I couldn't do anything about it because they chained me to the A-frame. That was pretty mental. That was a Christmas day, 2015. That was pretty scary. And there was another one where my old colleague Toy and I went out on a Japanese vessel called Hakomaru and went straight into a typhoon, straight off the bat. And that was just like, I mean, that's a big ship. It's a good, like, I don't know, 60, 70, 80 metres, something like that. And it was getting absolutely pummeled. And they're just like, off we go. And I'm just like, this, yeah, it's not normally big weather. I think big weather is where it becomes scary because you realise yeah. how vulnerable you are. Even on a big ship, the ocean is bigger than you. It's definitely, definitely bigger than you. <laughs> and so it's probably a weather-related stuff. But yeah. Yeah. I can remember a few where it was just... It was leaning too far and it was pausing mm. at the extremes of the lean. So it was like going right over and then rather than rolling back again, it would just hang there for a moment. And I, I can remember lying in my bunk, holding on, just sort of trying to measure the angle in my head and thinking like, this is it. Mm. This is the one that's going to flip us. Oh yeah. Scary. Oh, any hacks for being at sea? Like the room closest to the mess means that you get a midnight snack. Well, you don't normally get to choose, but I know that I've had been on ships where there's bad cabins to have. Like on the old Discovery, there used to be one near the bar. Oh, yeah. And we used to call it the Thunderbog cabin because there was a communal toilet next to it. And it was on a ship, you have vacuum flushing. And this particular toilet was very loud and, very, and vibrated a lot. And so if you got that cabin, you'd be trying to get to sleep and there'd be other guys in the bar and they'd all be taking their turns to go to the toilet every 10 minutes. And Thunderbog would go off right behind your head, just through the wall. So, oh, yeah. That's a good one. Uh, we had a few called the anti-gravity cabin, oh, yeah. which is the ones right in the bow. So I can I can remember one where, again, one of, one of these storms, I was being like pushed right down into the mattress so I could hear the springs groaning and then would like float a little bit out of my mattress as the bow came down again. So it's hard to sleep in that situation. Plus we've got bow thrusters, so it was deafening. It was horribly loud. So that was a bad cabin. Yeah, aim for low and in the middle of the ship if you don't like movement because yep. that tends to be the pivot point. That's a pro tip. Nothing else on cabins, really. Yeah. You get what you're given. Deal with it. Yeah. <laughs>
Oh, this is a weird one. Trickiest, most annoying critter to work with, look for, or study? Uh, for me, it's definitely the big decapods, the big pinnades, the big red shrimp we see at Hadel Depths. Uh. They're just so skittish that we've tried to catch them in a whole manner of different ways, but they're just everything about their morphology is to not get caught. <laughs> and so anything touches those antennae and they're just boof. We've got hours and hours and hours of footage of these things all over the place. And after 600 deployments, I think we've caught one of each species. And they were they were, they were about 2,000 miles apart, so utterly useless in terms of making any assumptions. So Data points. <laughs> the big red shrimp are the most beautiful, graceful things in the abyssal plains, but God, they're difficult to catch. Um, it came up today, actually, in a conversation. A weird one, but glass sponges. Oh yeah, nasty. Because the spicules are like fiberglass and it just, they get into your skin. You can wear it, no matter how many layers of gloves you wear somehow they still get into your skin and over a few weeks it's like eczema oh they're just really you're just covered in a rash it's really not nice at all and as we've discussed they smell it's almost as if humans haven't really evolved to handle glass sponges from the deep sea it's like they, they didn't really evolve together at any point it's, it seems like that's that it's like we don't like microscopic glass splinters and they go right into our hands yeah it's like trying to pick up ten thousand hypodermic needles and going, wow, this is really awkward. Yes. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. One of those yellow needle bins they have in hospitals. It's just like yeah. rooting around in one of those. Yeah. With the toffee <laughs> at the bottom. What was it like the first time you went on a ship or down in a submarine? I think the sub's an interesting one. Yeah, the first time I went on a ship was RRS Discovery. I just really enjoyed it. I just genuinely just really enjoyed the whole thing. It was just a really great experience. I loved it. I thought, I'll, I'll, I'll do this. First time in a submarine, are we talking first successful dive or the first aborted dive? Oh, that's true. There was a near miss first, wasn't there? Yeah, first time in a submarine didn't go that well. Uh, first successful dive was just brilliant. It was just such a good day out and coming back. And I think I told this story on the very first podcast, but it was just it was, it was just one of those days. It was just great. It really was. It was just, it went like clockwork kind of, you know, and there was a big party at the end and the weather was like an absolute glass off and there was a big sunset at the end and they made me a t-shirt and it was all, it was just really cool. Yeah. Loved it. Oh, this is a good one. And what's the biggest animal you've seen both on the ship and in the subs? On the ship was a blue whale we saw last year coming back. That's the biggest one. Yeah. That's the biggest one, Alan. You can't top that. I know, I bagged it. I, I've got nowhere to go with that. It's the challenge of deep with big animals. Right? <laughs> That's what they say. That's what it says in the book. We were on a privately owned yacht and we had just come back from doing the Diamantina fracture zone coming into Perth and we were told to watch out for pygmy blue whales and all this kind of stuff because it's a sanctuary a protected area and so on and we're up there doing our due diligence to make sure we didn't ram any whales and this was not a pygmy blue whale <laughs> <laughs> quite the opposite my friend quite the opposite this was absolutely enormous I mean, I've, I've seen them before but always at a distance right you don't really get a sense of scale but this one was pretty close and it was just like wow that was just absolutely enormous like it's so big it doesn't make sense well, you know what I mean it's just like that's that didn't grow like someone's made that <laughs> that's a prop that's not real yeah yeah that was, that was really quite something special uh in the sub probably just a big cuscule you don't you don't have real big stuff down deep there's an optimum size everything sort of gets to that mm. one and a half meters yeah actually that reminds me of a couple of stories since we're doing a stories one i was offshore for a with an engineer who it was his first time he'd like transferred it was like his first time going offshore or like an early early time going offshore and as we're heading out of port some common dolphins are bow riding mm -hmm. and he'd had quite a tough background and he didn't quite know how to process that and the only way he could sort of sum it up was to he just genuinely asked me are those real it just couldn't <laughs> couldn't believe it. like I, d I don't know what the alternative was i don't know how i would have faked that but it just was so overwhelmed by the moment he couldn't believe it was real you could have just told them they weren't and they were robotic and it's part of the the sample design yeah or it's like when you you get a plastic owl to scare off pigeons so we yeah. just have plastic dolphins on our bow yeah to scare off the flying fish yeah so don't chip the pin <laughs> talking about things they they do and don't like the common dolphins really like this one piece of equipment we used to use called a boomer which basically was yellow and dolphin shaped and these are the one these are the dolphins with the flash of yellow down their side the hourglass shape and apparently that was very very sexy to them so they'd all be flirting with this piece of toad gear so that was fun but yeah for the biggest animal Nowhere near yours, but one of the sort of 
magical ones were um, pilot whales, which are mm. really just big dolphins, but they're quite curious. And we were holding station to uh, lower a CTD, I think it was. And they do this thing called spy hopping. And a few, a few different animals do this, where they sort of bob straight up out of the water to get a look at you, basically, or to, to orientate themselves because they can have a little 360 twirl and, and come around. And they just made eye contact with this this pod. And they were, they were really quite big, or at least in my memory, they're really quite big. And they're just standing out the water like the monolith from uh, 2001. Mm. Just these huge black animals rising out of the sea and making eye contact with us and a sort of like, what the hell are you doing here? This is our area. <laughs> so they seem to sort of curious, but yeah, they hung around for a while. That was a cool one. What's it like getting to connect with all these specialized scientists and interviewing them? I'd say that's probably why we started the show because we talked to a lot of people on these trips and we're just like, you, you are really cool and nobody even knows what it is you study or the general public don't and they have a right to be as interested as we are. <laughs> Yeah, no, I agree. I think there's a lot of the way in which deep sea science is presented. We, we, we rant about this all the time, the way it's presented in the media and stuff like that. There's a certain narrative which is becoming really boring. But when you actually work with a lot of these people, you're like, it should be boring. There's no way this should be, or not necessarily boring, but just really predictable. And there's way more interesting stuff going on. And there's all these, you know, people who don't necessarily get a voice to do it. And I think that's what the reason why we really started it, is to, is to get all these interesting people that come our way and just chat about it rather than making some sort of big bold statement about what ultimately always becomes knowing more about the moon and ocean conservation you know are there any specific news feeds to keep up on to hear more news about the deep sea this this is the tricky thing because this is why we started this because there aren't many yeah. i think the dosi newsletter is really good yeah we've mentioned that a few times so that's that's a great angle for deep sea news there is a few of the the dive streaming live streaming streams there is a discord called dive stream oceanographic i think it is we've mentioned these previously and we'll, we'll try and put the links in the show they're all really good for experiencing sort of deep sea science as it's happening yeah it's difficult because we, we started this because we worried that people who had a genuine interest couldn't find the good and factual stuff in amongst all the aliens and monsters and and nonsense hmm, yeah and we try and tweet we're not very good at it but both me and alan try and tweet when we can oh i've given up oh have you are you off it uh, yeah i just couldn't be bothered i don't know i just wasn't in the mood i'm losing my mojo i was an internet sensation for about a day <laughs> did you ever lose a platform technical device during an operation i say we just fly past that one just whiz right past it yeah. all, all i will say along those lines is everything you put in the sea is temporary the sea always wins yep you're lucky every time you get it back <laughs> Deep sea equipment doesn't generally live to be an old man. <laughs> yeah. They all die young and handsome. Yeah. Laser <laughs> glory, all of them. What is your favourite leisure activity while being at sea? We don't get a lot of free time. I don't think I do any leisure activity at sea other than a couple of beers at the end of the day. But even then, we'd probably talk about work. So probably nothing. <laughs> some good chatting. Um, I like something that will take me out of it if the vessel's starting to feel a bit small bit of cabin fever so like a bit of sci-fi or something or just a, like another world i can disappear off into so quite often that's an audiobook because i find reading exhausting so i usually load up on audiobooks and hmm. yeah have something i'm listening to that makes me feel like i can go somewhere else if uh I'm feeling a bit claustrophobic. Oh, did you ever have second thoughts about entering a deep sea sub? No. I know you, you, yeah, you're quite adamant on this one. No, never. If you're, if you're second guessing it or worried, you shouldn't be getting in it. That's the rules. Nobody gets in it if you don't want to get in it. Yeah, no one's forcing anyone. No. I can understand people get nervous. I mean, I still, I wouldn't class it necessarily as being nervous. It's probably more sort of slightly anxious to do with the ceremony of it all. It's not, it's not the safety of it in any way, shape or form, but when you get all tooled up in your, in your gear and everything else, and you're sat under the air conditioning, waiting to get the nod to come out and walk across the deck and get in the sub, it's a kind of like, a, a, it's like a waiting game. You've got 10 minutes to sort of pace. And it's that, I wouldn't say it's even nervous or even anxiety or whatever it is. It's just kind of like this, you're sort of psyching yourself up a little bit and you're sort of walking around in circles and then someone, you hear on over the radio saying, okay, ready for passengers. And then you walk out and you go in and then you're just doing what you need to do. So I don't think you really have time to think about it. Just get in it and go. It would be, I can't pee for the next 12 hours. That's what would be making me anxious. <laughs> I'm fine unless somebody tells me I can't. Doesn't bother me. There's a secret knack to that though, isn't there? What was it? A cup of tea and a hot shower? Well, the old guys talk about having, you know, you, you, you go for a wee in the hottest shower you can handle and then that'll give you a good 12 hours. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Worth knowing. Yeah. Do you have a favourite area of the world to be in on a boat and why? I don't know. It's kind of all the same. 
<laughs> Surely Antarctica. I know you were quite moved by that one. It's one of the few places where the stuff at the top. Uh, yes and no. No, it's nice. It's nice when you get the opportunity to come in close to the shore and you can see things like you know icebergs and penguins and all that kind of stuff. But certainly out in the open Southern Ocean, it's horrendous. It's an awful place. <laughs> it's a desert. I described it as. It's just. It's just terrifying. It's like if I left this little life pod, I would not survive very long at all. So it's humbling. Yeah. What's weird is that each ocean has a different colour, right? When you're in Antarctica, the water looks black. It looks very, very dark grey. If you're in the Pacific, it has a very, really specific colour of light blue. And in my mind, the Indian Ocean is a bit greener, and the Atlantic is even greener, if you like. It's amazing you could rattle that off. That is <laughs> that is an amazing observation. Yeah, I genuinely think it is. Yeah, I think it can tell the difference. And uh, one of the most, I think the most beautiful colour is when you get in this sub in the Pacific and you're on the surface and you just start to descend and you there's a moment around a few tens of metres, maybe 50 metres, 100 metres, something like that. You go very quickly, so you, you lose the light within the first few minutes. But there's a very specific colour of blue, which is very Pacific Ocean, and it's amazing. And the, the water clarity is amazing too. If you did it in the Atlantic, you get, the visibility is not very good. Uh, so that that one alone would probably be put in the Pacific as a favourite place. Get Dulux onto that. That one, that blue. Yeah. Both walls of my house, that one. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a favourite ship? We've had some some deep bonds. That's some deep bonds, but it's like like Kaharo was a favourite, but now six months ago we went back to see it. I'm like, I don't know how we ever worked on this thing. So <laughs> it's smaller than I remember. You know, the ship I went just now, I've got a lot of obviously a lot of history with it now. We've been working on it almost constantly for five years, but it must dwarf any other ship you've been on, really. Even the ones we felt we spent a lot of time on. Like you've lived on this one for yeah, you know, like you say, five years. But that makes it a different relationship to some of the other boats where you go on it and you just have great old time. Like Zona's a great vessel to be on. Yeah. I personally really like the old Zona. The new one's nice and it's bigger and it's got lots of, you know, it's just nicer kitted out. But the old Zona had some real character to it and it was a proper workhorse and the atmosphere was just good, you know, and it says a lot about the atmosphere. And as I say, look, I've said this before, there's some ships you get on and as soon as you set a foot in it, you're like, nah, I don't like this. Yeah. I won't name names, but there's some quite famous ships that I just, just don't like the vibe. It's got bad mojo. And I don't know if everyone else is picking up on that, but like everyone feels that way as well. So it's not a very good trip. Yeah. There's some that are just, I don't know what it is. It's not even the people or the, or the thing. It's just something about, I don't know, can't really put a finger on it. But the, the olds, I've got a lot of time for the olds on it, like that. Hmm. Do you get homesick or is there no time? I think you mentally compartmentalise it. So I know a lot of people struggle with stuff like that. And a lot of people spend every spare moment phoning back friends and family and stuff like that. But I'm really bad for this. I tend to just switch off. Uh, and knowing that I have to check in at home, I'll, I'll make time to go and do it. But then I promise you, I'd find you just don't have much to say. It's like, oh, how's it going? Well, I've done the same thing today. I've done the last 23 days. And, you know... As we get more connected, it's getting kind of difficult because you you really have to be present in that world. You're so busy. There's so much going on. Yeah. And you've got so little time and energy left over. You know, I, I it's lovely to sort of hear those voices, but also it makes me homesick. Yeah. Yeah. Because it reminds me of everything else. Yeah. And you can just, you can just be in the zone and... The more people there were to miss, you know, once I had a, a family of my own, it was a lot harder to go to sea, but I used to, I used to be fine with six weeks, you know, it was just, yeah. I'm going on the adventure and I'll be back when I'm back. But It's a hard thing to explain to someone who's not done it, but it's... It, I, and I, it sounds selfish. It doesn't sound nice because yeah. absolutely people I miss, but I can't find the time for updates and to, to juggle my home life from remote. If you can't switch it off, you'll just become miserable. This is the thing. So over the years, I think I've managed to kind of like switch it on and off when you have to, you know, if something happens at home and you have to sort of be in the zone for that, then you can... And so don't know what, maybe I'm just very robotic and very binary, but just kind of like, right, get into family mode and do whatever you need to do and make the calls you have to make. And then back on the ship, I don't, I don't sit and dwell on things or mope around and wish that was somewhere else. You're just, you're there now, just do the job, get off. And when you get off, you'll deal with whatever you have to deal with. You know, that's, that's I don't know, it's a superpower switching off. <laughs> uh, there's probably a lot of people in the military get that. Mm. I think that's a similar mentality. What's it like to try and do lab work on a rolling ship? Really irritating. I can't do microscopes. I can't, you're guaranteed to get seasick if you try and use a microscope. Actually, it's not lab work at a noise. Lab work's just a balancing act. It's like spinning plates, right? you just got to make sure everything's tied down, everything's got little holders and all that kind of stuff. The thing that bugs me is typing when it's really going for it. <laughs> I remember saying we did a job off Titanic. We were sitting up off Titanic. For, we went out there for like eight days and never got a single dive in because the weather was so bad and it was just rolling all the time. And for some reason, I forget what it is, I had to write something for something and I promised myself I'd do it when I was away. And it's just every word you 
street type, there's a typo yeah. because you're 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 sort of like being pulled off the keys. You're pulled off the keys and you're pulled <laughs> on the keys and you're back and you spend the whole time just going T H E E delete space. <laughs> you know, it's just it's just you might as well just start typing with one finger because it's just so irritating. And that's when I get to the point I want to take the laptop, take it outside, and literally throw it into the sea. I find <laughs> typing in rough seas to be the most irritating thing. I can't hold my my thread together either. I, I find I'm, my writing's really bad. It's not just using the keyboard. It's just stringing sentences together with that sort of external stimulation of constantly holding balance. Yeah. I just, yeah, my, my writing's terrible when I'm at sea. Oh, it's weird. Do you ever get songs stuck in your head specifically at sea? Yeah. I've discussed this. Yeah. And I think it's the rhythm of the vessel. I think the the rocking of the vessel is the same tempo as certain pieces of music. Yeah. And they just get stuck in my head. We experimented on that once where we deliberately picked a song and started playing it quite a lot in a lab to see if you would it would then catch like a virus. And ultimately you'd end up a couple of days later, you'd find somebody whistling it. Did that once on the James Cook. Oh, did it work? It did. It was Octopus's yeah. Garden. Okay, that's a good one. Mm. How do you mentally prepare for a stint at sea? I think it depends where you are in your career and what your background is. I think going back, I would probably struggle more when I came back than going. Because when you're young, free and single, and you're like, yeah, let's just go on a big adventure, and you just go and deal with it. And then you come back and you realize you have nothing. <laughs> you know, you come out there at the arrivals gate, and then there's all these wives and girlfriends, and all like, uh-huh. oh, everyone's that. And you just walk straight through the door and into a taxi and go to the pub and find your mates, and you realize that, why am I even doing this? Whereas now it's different because now you've, you've gone home to something, but then the heart bit is leaving in the first place because mm. you don't necessarily want to leave them but you're looking forward to coming back and so i think that that's that's something that shifted when you go from being young free and single knucklehead to someone who's actually got kids yeah that's really valid i find the build-up more stressful just because there's always that stress of getting everything ready getting yeah. the mob ready things are inevitably late suppliers inevitably let you down we have never successfully internationally shipped our equipment nope. yeah is that is that record still holding i think so yeah it's never worked out no so it's all it's always stressful and at the moment i'm just if i wake up at 3 a.m that that's it i'm up because i'm just running scenarios i'm packing things i'm running internal stress tests on pieces of gear i'm putting together and oh well if it bends that way is that going to break there and so yeah i'm finding this part quite stressful and so i don't want to then be snippy with my family and then when i'm away and missing them my last memories of the like last week and a half spent with them is me being tired and grumpy and stressed about other things and not really spending any time with them. So that's, uh, yeah, that's something I'm trying to balance right now. Oh, if you could give one piece of packing advice to someone going on the first expedition, what would it be? I know who this is. I know who asked this question and she's teeing me up, but do you have any? No. Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) The big grand finale question. No, I don't know. I've seen people come on, I still regularly see people come on ships with huge bags and loads of stuff. I just don't get it. You pack amazingly light. Your packing's fantastic. There's a washing machine on the ship, right? You don't you don't need to bring it a month's clothes. You just bring a week's worth and wash it. It's pretty easy to work out. Uh, my pro tip is when you're going to do the very careful packing of your bag, lay everything out on the floor, take a photo of it, and then pack your bag. So when you inevitably do that, oh, did I pack that thing? You can just zoom in on the photo and you don't have to unpack that bag six or seven times because you keep forgetting things. Huh, there you go. Never thought of that. That is my pro tip. Be- better than an inventory. You can just zoom in on it and see see that it's there. And if it's in the picture, it's in the bag. My alternative strategy is just don't take anything with you. <laughs> it's like, did I remember that to pack too. that? What? Oh, that's right. I don't take anything. So it's all good. <laughs> just four black polos. Yep. And some shorts. Yep. <laughs> So I wanted to start a new segment. We all remember Andrew Stewart, who was on a couple, it's been on a couple of episodes now, I think. Fellow I share an office with, and every morning over coffee, he will just come out with an incredible story that I don't think is written down anywhere, or isn't sort of summarized anywhere. So over coffee in the morning, I'm going to start recording some of Andrew Stewart's stories from 45 years in the fish department of the museum. And there's been some good ones. So this one is about a strange bottle that appeared on my desk. Enjoy. Coffee's ready. Excellent. So you appeared during one coffee morning and placed upon my desk this clear, viscous fluid. Uh, and then ominously on top is look but do not open. <laughs> and this is uh, this is of your own creation. This yes. is of your own brewing process. Yes. What is it? What is it? It's squalene oil. Some of the deep 
Such sharks yeah. we've been processing. Some of the deep sharks we've been processing. Material which is a bit too smashed up to warrant including in the collection of common material, common species. So, or if uh, we're skeletonizing. Or if, no, we're, just, no if we're just removing the jaws or um, a section of skin, denticles, things like that. So it just seemed an awful waste to be throwing the rest of it out. And um, for a long time I've known about squalene. We used to have a policy under the former one of the former curators of removing the livers from chondrichthyan fishes, and it made a hell of a mess. <laughs> and it didn't actually leave a very good specimen because you had to then pack out the gut cavity with, with cloth to get that fullness. Was it to stop all the oil coming out of the yes, conservative? Yeah, because yeah, um, some of the tanks have quite a, quite a layer, but it's layer. not doing any harm. It's not doing any harm. It's it, gross. It actually um, seems to reduce um, alcohol loss, but when you're pulling specimens through it and you're handling it, everything's covered with this thick, slick yeah. of of oil and every surface that it touches and your hands, your gloves, all your instruments needs a good solid bath in degreasing <laughs> to get rid of it. So I thought, well, you know, there must be a use for this. I mean, it's been historically used by all kinds of cultures and people, maritime peoples, for centuries would known about it. So what I did was I extracted the liver, I put it into a cloth bag, mushed it a bit. Mushing, yeah. Mushing, mushing is good. And then basically suspended it over um, a large container and out flowed like a river in some species this um, oil which is a, quite a variety of colours I and mean, what you've got there is it's mostly Aprosturus the deep water pentanchid shark other sharks it's golden there was one shark which we did which was very badly beaten up and just I couldn't justify keeping it so we removed the jaws take all the critical measurements and things off remove the liver and the oil is sort of like a, a so it's like a rust colour rust colour it was like a, a red Ale. It's oh, right. Deep, right. deep red. red. Yeah, deep ah, red. That was the bramble shark. Yeah. The... And I didn't know whether that was sort of, it had had such a bad time that, that it had started to hemorrhage into its liver, but I would have, would have expected the, um, the blood to have settled out. Yeah, yeah whatever's in there yeah. is dissolved in the oils. So. Yeah, so um, maybe it is heme. Who knows? But um, yeah, uh, the reason why that ominous label is on the top is that as well as um, the oils, you get quite a lot of aromatics, which can be... Um, <laughs> Not like a lovely gin. Uh, it's a shark aromatics. It, it's, it's, it's a very unique, tangy, uh, sharky smell. Okay. So, Maybe we'll write it up like a, like yeah. a gin description. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But one of the uh, interesting things is I first did this back in the 90s with a very large seal shark, Delacious Lycha, and this thing was... About 1.8 metres long, about as big as they get. And they're I'm, kind of a big cookie cutter, aren't they? Yeah, they're king of the cookie cutters. Yeah. Cookie cutter on steroids. So I must have got about four litres of oil out Jeez. of that. It, massive volume of oil. I've still got um, a good two litre bottle of it at home. But once I'd sort of left it covered with a tissue so you didn't get extraneous muck and insects going into it, it actually, the aromatics actually came off and were lost. And it has the very, very faintest whiff of shark, <laughs> which I understand is TMAO. Uh, yeah, and the, I guess the ammonia would all leave the ammonia, as well. So. Yeah, and, but it is the most amazing stuff. It, it doesn't go off. It doesn't oxidise in the way that other oils oxidise. And, and I've the, used it ex externally, put it on metalwork externally. And the, it can make up, was it about a third of the, the shark's yeah, body weight? Yeah. And that that it doesn't oxidize that it doesn't break down mm -hmm. is a little bit of a clue to its function because yeah. it's not an energy store no so mm -hmm. even bacteria do, don't break this down because it's not worth it it takes yeah. more energy to digest do it, it yeah. than it does to yeah it, release. It's, it's the fish equivalent of eating celery yeah. <laughs> so, um so yeah i put it on metal outside and it's um it's it stayed you know it's prevented rust there used to be a product you could get called fishaline Fischeline, I was trying to remember the and, name. Um, yeah, it used to be sprayed particularly on the inside of boots of cars, which were notoriously bad for rusting up. Oh. And cars would, would absolutely honk because you'd applied it. But they wouldn't be rusting. They wouldn't be rusting. <laughs> yeah, you gotta got to look after that asset. But the other bit of social information around this for the Wellington area is that uh, down on Island Bay, there's a large fishing community comprising Shetland Islanders, Greeks and Italians. And they used to take the boats out and cook straight, and they'd be mostly targeting harpocra and bass, uh, what some of your listeners would call wreckfish. But they'd also get a large bycatch of, of quite large sharks. And they would boil the livers down. They had big whaling pots to boil the livers down to extract the oil, because this was money to them. Mm. And apparently the smell was quite something in the area as, as, as gently simmering livers were mm. deconstructed and, and the oil removed. 
It was used in woodworking as well sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, until the advent of, I guess, a petrochemical industry, this was... A yeah, it's like whale oil. Whale we, oil. We didn't have a way of getting these yeah. kind of petrochemical, these, these and oils. They say, they say whale oil sort of was one of the big drivers of the Industrial Revolution yeah. in, in the UK. That and it's, coal. It's wild. Before before we found oil, mm. we were running things on whale juice. Yeah. And this is, this is yeah. similar to that. And it's we touched upon that it's not an energy store. Mm. This is buoyancy for these yeah. sharks, isn't it? Yes. So they, um, so because it's a fluid, it is to all intents and purposes non-compressible. Uh, so it gives them that sort of margin for going deeper. You don't have to worry about venting excess gas if you come up fast or um, problems with compression if you go down fast. There are other issues they have to probably deal with, such as any gas dissolved in, in the blood. Yeah, it's not as it's not as adjustable as a swim bladder, but no. it's also a little bit more foolproof. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it can't go explosively wrong. Mm. And it seems to be a thing of chondrichthians. You don't see it being repeated so much in other groups. I mean, I can remember getting cod liver oil as a kid, and I don't know what it came from, to be quite honest. <laughs> yeah, what it's, it's branded as. But, but I bet you bottom dollar it sure as hell wasn't cod. And it's probably an energy store in the cod, isn't it? Yeah. Um, as much as anything, it, it doesn't seem, it, it didn't seem to sort of be the same purpose. I'm struggling to remember much about cod. I remember catching them as a kid in, at Cape Cod in Massachusetts. But we, we see a lot of their relatives. We see a lot of the grenadiers. They have that huge energy store liver because mm. they've got the swim bladder got, as well. As well, and that's, often they'll, they'll invert on the way up. And yep. that's when that's our, when it can go wrong. That's when it goes badly wrong. And, and as a scientific specimen, that's where our tool, the gut stuffer two thousand, comes into play. Somebody's got to stuff those guts back in. Yeah, I know. And if anyone wants to know about those, they can read yep. our blog on We've the Apple website. Link. We've got a blog link. Uh, yeah, to the gut stuffer. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm more than happy to sort of have this bottle of taking up space in my garage because when you want something that this is really good at, there's nothing else can really take its place. Yeah, it's really, it's really fine. It it's really penetrates. Yep. It doesn't break down. Yep. It doesn't oxidize. Nice. It doesn't tend to wash yeah, off. It, it's not acidic or it doesn't appear to be acidic. Uh, I haven't seen any acid effects on any metal I've applied it to. It's got an interesting feel when you touch it. It sort of feels warm oh, weird. to the touch. Like it's insulating. Well, I don't know. It might be reacting with some of the fats in my hand. I don't know. It just feels warm and very light. Hmm. Um, some, of the, some of the lubricants I use, one in particular, Inox, is my favourite sort of... Non-shark. Non-shark <laughs> lubricant. Um, and, and, and you... Get that on your hand, and it you feels like yeah, I've got oil on my hands. But with shark liver oil, it actually feels quite different. Oh, okay, it feels perhaps perhaps uh, reaching back to a distant ancestor, and us all. Oh, familiarity. Yeah, yeah, yeah I remember familiarity. When. Yes, yes. Back when <laughs> back when we were all contractors. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. Happy oh, coffee well, morning. Yeah, yeah. Let's enjoy coffee. So there we go. Something a little bit different. I hope it was still an interesting episode. Some rapid fire questions about going to sea while me and Alan are both very, very fixated on uh, on getting ready and going out there. So we'll have updates on that coming soon. We'll tell you what it is we're up to. We're both going our separate ways. We're both going on separate expeditions. So we'll have lots to tell you when we're back. We have some exciting shows in the pipeline based around questions from uh, from listeners. Uh, it's great that we get this dialogue back and forth now, particularly with the Patreons, like what you want to know about. So we will be visiting hagfish. We will be visiting the jawless vertebrates. And we'll also do an Elasmo sort of special series. So we'll do Chimera, we'll do Sharks, and we'll do Skates and Rays. So we've got some cool critter-based episodes on the way. And that concludes this episode of the Deep Sea Podcast. There is a link in the show notes for how you can support the show if you want to give us a hand. Everything from sort of liking and reviewing and things that you can do for free to things like becoming a patron, which again, continues to blow my mind that, that people are just so generous. And we've got a nice little community forming now. I'm loving seeing the chat of just people interacting and becoming friends through the show. Uh, a real variety of people with some really cool stories. So until we both return from sea, we'll deep see you next time, and we abyss you already.
If you would like to advertise with the Deep Sea Podcast, feel free to get in touch. Our audience is primarily young people with an interest in science, often undergraduates or people considering a degree in marine science, but it also includes established scientists. Feel free to get in touch if you're interested in reaching these groups.